It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Coming up, how a slug-like fossil is shedding light on the mollusk family tree. So it sort of ends this paleontological mystery. And the Arctic is melting. But is that the end of the story for its ice? If we were able to reduce the temperatures, then the ice would come back. Plus how free-floating DNA could impact how cancers evolve. This is The Nature Podcast for February the 9th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. The Arctic is losing its sea ice, and fast. The ice has thinned and retreated, leaving behind just a quarter of what was there only 30 years ago. Adam takes a look at why that matters and whether one day we might be able to grow it back. Researcher Dirk Knotts has a very personal relationship with the ice at the top of the world. I think as a kid I was uh, I was just fascinated by anything adventurous um, and obviously explorers trying to reach the North Pole or the South Pole were those stories that I uh, that I, I read as a kid. When I was studying meteorology here in Hamburg, um, suddenly the opportunity arose to spend a year and study up there, and I immediately fell in love with that landscape. Whenever I take photos up there um, and I come home and show those to my kids, knowing that by the time that they've reached my age, all of that might be gone, actually creates a, a very real sadness of, of seeing something disappearing in front of our eyes and knowing that it's our responsibility. The globe is warming, but the Arctic is burning up. In fact, the Arctic is heating about twice as fast as the global average. As the sea ice melts, it reveals the dark ocean beneath. In a vicious circle, more and more sunlight is absorbed, amplifying the warming process. Many scientists now see Arctic summers free of ice as a question of when, not if. Scientists can work out roughly how much more CO2 we can emit before the last of the sea ice melts away. And considering the scale of global emissions, the figure is uncomfortably small. At current emission rates, that number will be reached within 20 to 30 years. The loss of this ice will have direct impacts on the people and wildlife that rely on it. But sea ice researcher Stephanie Furman explains that we all have reason to care about the vanishing Arctic. The world needs an Arctic uh, that is along the lines of what it is today. So the Arctic provides services to the rest of the globe. You know, it, it provides a sea level stabilization service, you know, because it keeps the ice frozen on Greenland. Uh, the cold Arctic 
atmosphere keeps our weather system stable because the whole weather system is driven by the gradient between the tropics and the poles. So the changes in the Arctic can affect billions of people around the globe. With the stakes so high, the Arctic has become the poster child for tackling global warming. Many scientists are increasingly pessimistic about its chances. But Stephanie is refusing to be defeated so easily. What's interesting is that a lot of people have been focusing on the ice loss. But when you cool the Arctic, you know, if we were able to reduce the temperatures, then the ice would come back. In Stephanie's future Arctic, the loss of ice isn't the end of the story. She suggests that even after Arctic sea ice has disappeared during summers and all that's left is miles of blue sea, cooling the earth could allow it to eventually regrow. It could be a scenario where people have gotten sort of used to this mostly blue Arctic. And then if we are successful in addressing global warming through our actions and we are successful in turning temperature around, then the ice would come back um, to this blue Arctic. But cooling the world is easier said than done. It's not going to be enough to just stop producing emissions. We're going to have to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Many climate change policies, including the Paris Agreement, may rely on these negative emissions technologies to achieve their targets. But Dirk is unsure whether these will work in practice. In order to regrow massive amounts of CS in the Arctic, we would have to remove CO2 at a very large scale from the atmosphere. And so far I haven't seen a single method that um, would not only extract CO2 from the atmosphere, but would also allow for its, its storage um, for very, very long time periods. There are alternatives to extracting and storing CO2. Other approaches might be able to cool just the Arctic, say by using brightly coloured particles to reflect away the sun's rays once again. But geoengineering the Arctic in this way could come with unforeseen consequences, and many think that CO2 capture and storage is the only viable option to lower temperatures. Removing such vast amounts of CO2 is a daunting task. Even so, Stephanie wonders if economics might be able to turn it into a reality. I'm optimistic because it, this is new technology, it's, it's jobs, you know, so I think that, that having people focus on, on trying to tackle this problem and trying to resolve it is something that we, we might be able to, to achieve. No one knows for sure whether we'll be able to develop the technology to remove CO2 on these huge scales. And so no one knows for sure whether we would ever be able to return the Arctic to its former glory. So for Dirk, to protect the Arctic, and indeed the planet, it's far safer to avoid the warming in the first place. From, from my personal um, perspective, it really seems most efficient to emit less CO2 rather than having to extract the CO2 from the atmosphere later on. That was Dirk Notz, who's at the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology in Hamburg, Germany. Before Dirk, you heard from Stephanie Furman of Barnard College at Columbia in the US. For more on the ice loss and possibility of regrowth in the Arctic, check out the feature in this week's Nature. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. Next up, Noah has been investigating how DNA found outside of chromosomes could be impacting how cancer evolves. 
How do cancers evolve? It's a hot topic in medicine, and one that Paul Michel from the Ludwig Institute of Cancer Research in San Diego, US, wants to know more about. Cancers become more aggressive as time goes on and more and more difficult to treat. They evolve. And cancer cells don't always evolve slowly and steadily. Recent data suggests that it isn't a straight linear process, but it's almost as if there's bursts of genome instability. And alterations of copy number, focal amplification, seem to be very important in this. One culprit that could be making genomes unstable is a type of gene called an oncogene. Paul and his team know that there are way too many copies of these genes in cancer cells, but where do the copies actually live in the cell? When we began to think about this and to talk with colleagues and to survey the literature about where are those copy number alterations, where are those focal amplifications localized in the cell, it was very unclear. Nobody actually knew. So, Paul and his team went back to basics and looked at how DNA is stored. One of the first things people learn when they study biology is that prokaryotes, things like bacteria, um, have their DNA on a circle, a small circular chromosome and small circular plasmids. In contrast, linear DNA is the rule for eukaryotes, uh, including uh, vertebrate animals and humans. In eukaryotes like us, this DNA is stored in chromosomes. But we have some DNA outside of our chromosomes too. There was an observation that was made uh, in the 70s to 80s. When people looked at cancer chromosomes, they would notice these little dots. But at that time, it was hard to know what was on those dots. It turns out that these dots were free-floating circular DNA, known as extrachromosomal DNA elements. So what we did was we took a pretty wide swath, and this included a wide variety of cancer types, cancers of the brain, colon, lung, melanoma, ovary, pancreas. I think there were about uh, 17 different cancer types in this. And we also looked at normal cells so that we would be able to ask the first question, what's the scope, what's the frequency of these extrachromosomal DNA elements uh, in cells? And what became absolutely clear is that this is an fleetingly rare event in normal cells, but in cancer it's incredibly common. Nearly half of cancers have this. Paul and his team wanted to find out what was on these extrachromosomal DNA elements, so he started sequencing them along with the rest of the genome of these cancer cells. And in the whole genome sequencing, what we found is that the spectrum of amplifications in, in these cells was really identical to the spectrum of amplifications that one normally sees in the large cancer genome studies. They saw the same spectrum of oncogenes being amplified as other studies had seen. The kicker, though, came when they looked at where these oncogenes were located. We were in for a bit of a surprise, which was the most common oncogenes all are on extrachromosomal DNA and or extrachromosomal DNA jumping on to abnormal places on the chromosome, to abnormal locations on the chromosome. Those cancers which had extrachromosomal DNA associated with them also seem to be putting their oncogenes there. The question is, why? It occurred to us, it all goes back to Darwin, Charles Darwin and Gregor Mendel um, in the following sense. You know, circular DNA is really designed in a way for variation, whereas linear DNA for fidelity. Paul and his team argued that this circular extrachromosomal DNA, chock full of oncogenes, helps tumours to evolve more rapidly. 
He explained, starting with how oncogenes on normal chromosomes are copied during cell division. So let's just take an example. Let's just say an, uh, uh, an oncogene had three copies that were sitting on chromosomes. When that cell was getting ready to divide, it would make six copies, and those chromosomes would be passed equally to daughter cells three and three. If, in contrast, that oncogene were amplified in extrachromosomal DNA elements. When that cell was getting ready to divide, it would make six copies. But those uh, six copies aren't parceled uh, equally to daughter cells being on chromosomes. They can actually be randomly segregated. So you could get six and zero, you could get five and one, you could get four and two, or you can get three and three to daughter cells. And if you look at that, what that implies is, are two features. One, the copy number goes up very rapidly. The second thing that it implies is the variance is enormous because you go not just three and three now, you've got a range that goes from six to zero. And going back to Darwin's principles, you know, the, the, of natural selection, variation is really a critical component of that. And so this provides effectively the fuel for selection. It's quite likely that there's, under any variety of conditions, there's a tumor cell that has the optimal amount of that particular gene to thrive under that particular circumstance. Essentially, if a cancer cell's oncogenes are on its chromosomes, then when the cell divides, the two daughter cells will get an exact copy of the parent's oncogenes, and the number of copies of the genes stay the same. But if the oncogenes are on free-floating extrachromosomal DNA, then the daughter cells could get an endlessly varying mixture of different oncogenes and different copy numbers. By mixing everything up, the cancer helps the process of natural selection find a foothold. This theory has been supported by computer modelling and appears consistent with clinical data. Paul thinks that this could go some way to explaining why some cancers see bursts of severity and grow so rapidly. In all of these cancers that you seem to have, you know, patients present with very aggressive, high-grade tumours, we tend to see that those cancers have a lot of extrachromosomal DNA elements. Can, you know, glioblastoma, pancreas, ovarian cancer, those sorts of things. If this is the case, Paul hopes it could lead to new treatments. If we figure out the rules that govern this process, perhaps that can be stopped. Perhaps there's a vulnerability that, that can be targeted. Because if cancer cells can't engage this mechanism, they won't be able to adapt or evolve as quickly. And if that's the case, we may be much more capable of intervening therapeutically in a way that actually works and have a higher success rate in our treatments of cancer cells. That was Paul Michel from the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research in the US. Read more at nature.com slash nature. Still to come in the news chat, it's a year since the LIGO team announced that they had detected gravitational waves. But physicists are not the type to sit back and stop looking. Our reporter Davide Castelvecchi will be here to tell us what they're planning next. But now, though, it's the best research in bite-sized form. It's the research highlights read by Cory Look. Bats are capable of some amazing aerial feats, and now researchers have built a bat-like robot that can do many of the same maneuvers. The device, called BatBot, weighs 93 grams. Each wing has nine joints and is covered with a stretchy silicone skin. This allows the wings to fold, extend, and move independently of each other. BatBot can fly straight, dive, and even do banked turns. Previous bat-inspired robots could not even get off the ground. Now the researchers say they can use BatBot to learn more about the mechanics of bat flight. 
You can find the study in the journal Science Robotics. Gene therapy has allowed deaf mice to hear again. Researchers studied newborn mice with genetic mutations that cause Usher syndrome, a genetic disease that causes deafness, blindness, and balance problems in people. The scientists injected a synthetic virus into the ears of the deaf mice. The virus carried a healthy version of the mutated gene. The team found that the new gene was incorporated into the sound-sensing cells in the ear, and this restored hearing. The animals could respond to sounds as quiet as a whisper. With further testing, gene therapy could one day be used to treat certain genetic forms of deafness. The study was published in the journal Nature Biotechnology. We love getting your reviews by email and on iTunes, like the one we got from Sam Radjabi, who emailed us from Iran to say that we make the Tehran commute more bearable for him, and to chemical engineer Richard Oberdeek, who's been listening for the past four years. We were less happy to hear that reviewer Dads53 thought this month's back chat was vacuous. Sorry, Dads, though it is worth pointing out that vacuums are actually very interesting indeed, so maybe you meant it as a compliment? If you've got thoughts on the show, you can email us. Podcast at nature.com. Or find us on Twitter. At Nature Podcast. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcasting software of choice, which will hopefully help others find the show. Now, Adam, what do mussels and squid have in common, apart from the fact that they're both delicious? Well, unless you're a vegetarian. Uh, unless you're a vegetarian. Or keep kosher. OK, sure. But, but aside from that, delicious or not, they're also both mollusks, which means at some point way back when, the tentacly shellless squid and the two-shelled mussel shared a common ancestor. Sharmini Bundell set off across the city to find out what it might have looked like. If you're in London and want to find out about mollusks and their relatives, the place to head is the Natural History Museum. They've got your common or garden mollusks like slugs and snails, your marine mollusks like clams and squid, and mollusks you've never even heard of, including some that look like worms and others that look like woodlice or pillbugs. And that's just the modern mollusks. In order to get a proper idea of the mollusk family tree, you need fossils. Fortunately, the Natural History Museum has plenty of these too. I fought my way through the school trip crowds into a back office to find Luke Parry from the University of Bristol. He's been working here during his PhD, which involves studying a 478 million year old fossil mollusk. Hi Luke. Hi. We're going to be talking a lot about mollusks today. Um, they're not the most glamorous of creatures. What's so great about mollusks? So I think the most interesting thing about mollusks is that they're incredibly diverse today and they also have a number of disparate body plans. They span the range from things which are really complicated and really intelligent like octopuses that use tools to then really simple things like clams and garden snails. So there are loads of different types of mollusks even living in the, in the world today. How did they all evolve? So if we look at the family tree of mollusks, there are two main groups. So there's what, what are called the conchiferan mollusks. So those are things like snails, octopuses and clams and then if we look at the other main lineage of mollusks I actually have so this is a chitin here so these are things that have these eight shells that lie across the top of their body and then they look uh, a bit like pill bugs yeah they do look a little bit like pill bugs and then you have these really weird things uh, see these worm mollusks and there were some sort of mystery organisms that were found that for a long time people didn't know where they fit in. Yeah, so one of the things that people have been discussing uh, is Halkyria. So this is from the early Cambrian of Greenland. So you've got a fossil here which looks like a sort of vaguely flat slug shape. Yeah, so it's like a spiny slug and uh, it has a shell at either end of its body. 
and then the rest of its body is covered in this like really complicated arrangement of um, little mineralized spines and spicules. So it's got a, a few kind of weird characteristics. And um, why why was this particular fossil um, so mysterious? So it doesn't really look like anything that's alive today. So people have debated whether or not it could be closely related to mollusks or lie within mollusks. And people have also debated whether or not it could be an ancestor of things called brachiopods or lamp shells. So we didn't even know if this was a mollusk or not. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And that brings us on to... Um, a new find, Indeed, which is yeah. what the paper's about, this new creature. So uh, our new fossil is from the, the Ordovician of Morocco. So this thing is quite substantially younger than a lot of the other fossils that we've talked about. What are we calling this, this new creature? So this thing is called uh, Calvapillosa krugeri. So it's named... Don't a- make it easy, do you? No. So the, the name Calvapillosa means like shaggy head because it's got this like one shell that sits at the front that's covered in all these all these sort of hairy thin spines and and we've got some pictures of the fossil here and we've also got a, a sort of recreation that I'm not sure I want to touch because yeah. it's kind of spiky looking yep yeah, so um so what you can see here is um you've got the main body which is covered in all these tiny little spiny sclerites so they would have been mineralized in calcium carbonate so they would have been really really hard and they also extend over the shell as well the shell would have actually been peeking out from underneath them i feel like I know why limpets have shells and why snails have shells, because they can hide in them. This guy just has a sort of little shell on his head. Is that useful for it? So this is covering what's called a radula. So this is this um, this tooth tongue that they use for rasping up food. And it's actually the radula that's the, the sort of big new discovery. And why is the fact that it has this spiky radula tongue so important? So you can see that this um, this animal has like a lot of similarities with halkyria, so that two-shell thing that we saw earlier, in that it has this, this body covered by these mineralized sclerites, and then in this case only this one shell on the head. And the radula is a really, really important uh, morphological feature, because although not all mollusks have a radula, uh, a radula is not known from any other group of organisms. So because we can see a radula in this fossil, we know absolutely that it must belong to mollusks. So we've, we found ourselves a mollusk, and that also tells us about that other fossil, the Halkyria. Yeah. So it sort of ends this, this sort of paleontological mystery. It ends the debate about where Halkyria sits in the tree of life. And because we see it in this very, very similar-looking fossil, we can also say that a lot of other weird-looking things that we have from the Cambrian are probably also mollusks and also would have had this radula. So how many mysteries does this one specimen solve? So there are a number of different things from the Cambrian. There's obviously Halkyria, so this thing from Greenland. And then there are a few things which are known just from their shells or just from their spines, which are actually some of the earliest known mollusk fossils that we have. And does this help us solve the the question we were asking in the beginning, which is where did the mollusks come from? What were the first mollusks like? Yeah, so in our analysis of the family tree of mollusks, we find that these sort of armoured spiny slug things, so things like Halkyria and Calvapillosa, our new discovery, lie on the lineage leading to these pillbug-like mollusks, the chitons, and the worm mollusks, the aplicophorans. And because those two groups are very different from each other, so there's no, no shell on one side and many shells on the other side, we now know that that group evolved from an ancestor that only had a single shell, very much like our new discovery. And then if you look at the other major groups of mollusks, so things like snails and squids and octopuses and clams and so forth, it seems like those also evolved from a single shelled ancestor. So from that information, we can infer that only one shell, a single shell, was present in the last common ancestor of mollusks. Uh, we can also say that associated with this single shell, with some sort of covering of spines. So it tells us that things which are really, really complicated, like octopuses and squids, evolved from some sort of very, very simple, single-shelled, spiny ancestor, along with all of the other groups that we see today. 
That was Luke Parry of the University of Bristol sharing various mollusk fossils and models to Sharmini Bundell. The paper on Calvapidolosa Krugeri is out this week and can be found at nature.com slash nature. You definitely didn't sound like you were just making that up. What, nature.com slash nature? No, it's been like that, that for ages. That, no, the other bit, the Calvapidolosa... Oh, I can't even, I can't even try. Let's just leave this to Sharmini in future. It's time for the news now, and reporter Davide Castelvecchi joins me in the studio here in London. Davide, hello. Hello, Kerry. Your favourite topic, it's probably true still to say, is gravitational waves, is it not? I guess I have that reputation by now. And the LIGO discovery was uh, announced a year ago now. Yes, it was the 11th of February, where uh, your podcast colleague Adam Levy and I were both in Washington, D.C., and also our colleague Alex Witsi. So we did full coverage And uh, the coverage did not stop after the announcement was made. You're bringing it right up to date this week. Yes. So this week is interesting, not only because it's the first anniversary of this big announcement, but also because the sort of underdog instrument or observatory, which is in Pisa, Italy, is getting ready to start after a long overhaul uh, of shutdown of five years. And this this is an instrument that has already just like LIGO, has already uh, looked for gravitational waves in the past and now there's high expectations for what they can do together. So this is kind of a kind of a twin, or at least it's very similar to LIGO, and this apparatus is called Virgo. What's the aim of Virgo? Is it, is it exactly the same as what LIGO has been doing or are there any differences in what they're actually looking for? It is practically the same. So what they do is they, they bounce uh, laser waves, uh, a laser beam, between mirrors and they uh, have each each of these interferometers has two arms and then they compare the lengths uh, over time and they, they look for uh, the signs of passing gravitational waves. All these experiments pool their data together. They analyze their, the data together and they publish together. So when, the, when LIGO made, made its announcement, it was really the LIGO Virgo team and because they pool all their data and they collaborate on the analysis, they didn't feel at Virgo as if they'd been scooped in any way? Well, some of them privately did. I mean, there was excitement because they felt validated that this this entire field of research, which it wasn't clear at all that this was going to work at all, has been validated on the one hand. On the other hand, there's there was also a sense of we missed the big party, we missed the first big detection your story this week looks at when they get their detector back up and running, um, the kinds of things that they could work together with LIGO to improve upon. Um, what are some of the ways in which the two facilities, or the three if we count LIGO's two and Virgo as one, um, could work together to improve our knowledge of gravitational waves? One thing is that gravitational waves, uh, you know, when there's some event, some cosmic cataclysm, like two black holes merge, the waves come from that direction and depending what direction they come from, LIGO can be more or less sensitive to them. And uh, Virgo, which is geographically in a different hemisphere, and also it's, it's oriented differently with respect to the, the waves, will help to tease apart some, some of these details about the, the intricate physics of these waves. And the other thing is that the timing of arrival of these, of these signals can be used because there's like a few milliseconds of difference between the signals as they arrive at the two LIGO uh, locations and at Virgo. From these three timings, they can use trigonometry and uh, 
narrow down the direction they can actually figure out where in the sky it came from. I love it when people say words that I remember from maths GCSE. And it is, it's, de- it's definitely like high school level trigonometry they use. And are there more facilities like this on the horizon, given, I mean, it takes a long time to build one of these things? Yeah, this is very exciting. There is one next year in 2018. Uh, There's supposed to be the opening of Kagra, which is a Japanese um, detector, which is uh, kind of similar to LIGO or Virgo, except that it's underground. And also it will be cryogenic. Its mirrors, its optics will be kept 20 degrees above absolute zero to reduce the thermal fluctuations and and the noise. Let's just wind back from this very forward-looking article that you've just written to an article that you wrote last week. It's actually a book review and it also has to do with LIGO. So cast your minds back, listeners, to when the gravitational wave announcement was made. That was February. But of course, since September of the previous year, it had been known about. And all of this time and for the previous few decades, Harry Collins, who's a sociologist, was embedded with the team at LIGO and he's written a book about the finding, hasn't he? It's indeed a very exciting book to read. It's the first book that tells the inside story of the discovery and how the researchers went about, first of all, convincing themselves that they that they didn't have just, you know, just a fluke, um, to uh, deciding how they would go about letting the world know and, and convincing their peers that the data was solid. Tell us a little bit about Harry Collins, because as I mentioned in the intro, he's he's basically a kind of member of the family at LIGO, isn't he, at this point? Yes, this is his fourth book, by my count, about LIGO. He doesn't spend all of his time there, but he keeps in touch. He gets all the internal emails and he visits the lab uh, periodically. He's interested in how do scientists know that they know something? How do they go from seeing some some data that looks interesting to actually realizing that the data constitutes a discovery. And this is a very, very interesting um, process. It's not like a eureka moment, the way it's often described. And in this latest, I mean, this is prob- this is an extreme example, isn't it, LIGO, of the way the discovery was made, the amount of people who were needed to make that discovery, and then finally announce it. Absolutely. And a lot of what the book focuses on is the issue of transparency. He is he disagrees strongly with the uh, the way that LIGO and Virgo went about trying to keep it a secret. Their official line was always, we cannot comment on our data analysis. We are, we are studying our data and we will make an announcement when we can. Meanwhile, journalists such as myself were, were frantically trying to piece together uh, what was happening from rumors and, and, and uh, things that were being said. And this is also something that figures prominently in the book, I should say, uh, for, disc- for full disclosure, I am mentioned in the book because uh, one of the people that I kept calling to ask for comments was uh, the author, Harry Collins himself. Do, I mean, do you reach the same conclusion in your position as a journalist phoning around trying to make sure, trying to establish whether the rumours are true or not? Um, do, you, do you agree with him that they were not transparent enough? Well, he certainly makes a very, very eloquent and noble case for science to be uh, an exemplar, a, a kind of a beacon of intellectual honesty. I just don't know that scientists necessarily need to release, you know, tell everyone what they know as soon as they know it. 
before coming out with a claim, they wanted to be really sure. Davide, thank you very much for coming in. You can find Davide's book review and the news story on Virgo at nature.com slash news. That's all we've got time for this week, but there's more where that came from. There's a sci-fi short story just out on the podcast feed, and soon we are rebroadcasting the penultimate episode of the Nature Podcast, our history of science show. If you're a subscriber, you'll get it automatically. Or if you're listening to this episode but haven't subscribed, do consider finding us on your favourite podcasting app. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.